0: episode of Gripped we talked to Malcolm Hooper. He's currently a student at Durham College where he is the captain of their rugby team. They just finished by winning their season becoming champions and I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple months ago at Speaker Slam. Thank you Dan and Rena. He gave a speech on the theme Power of Belief and it was so good and it was so profound that I knew that I had to connect with him. He was the winner of that competition and his speech got picked up on Facebook and shared uh, thousands of times and it has almost a million views. So I'm very impressed by this young man, this 22 year olds his philosophy, his mindset, and the amount of action that he takes. So if you're looking for a shake-up in your mindset, this is the episode for you. This is Gripped, Malcolm. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I Appreciate it, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I got to see you live on stage at Speaker Slam, and that's exactly where I wanted to start out. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, what is Speaker Slam, a little bit about how you got there, and then what did that night mean for you?
1: Um, basically, so Speaker Slam was brand new to me. Um, I had no prior speaking uh, experience. Um, I was at Durham college and, uh, we had a two minute speed speech contest. Okay. I don't enter contests at school. I don't do anything of the sorts there. And, uh, it came into my email and normally I just send that right to the the deleted folder. Uh, but I thought about building my business portfolio as I'm a, a second year marketing student. So I actually took them up on it. I actually went and, uh, went out and competed. I came first. Mind you, only five people showed up. <laughs> It made it pretty easy, but that was the first uh, kind of feeling I had at formulating a speech and presenting it in front of any people at all. And uh, the thing was community, and that one kind of struck home to me, so I felt really good about writing a speech for that. And after that, I kind of got like a rush, like a a really good feeling about people listening to my story. And um, it was a feeling that I couldn't really describe, I couldn't really understand, but I knew I wanted to pursue it. Uh, so for the next two weeks i just looked up opportunities that i could have near me and i came with a variety of variety of different agencies and competitions and all that stuff and i would i would call agencies and i'd ask them hey i've got a lot i've got a story I want heard um i feel like i've got a like a great way of delivering it uh would you be open to taking me and i got unresponses i got Left on red. I got a whole bunch of stuff. The best one I had probably was uh, I called an agency and they asked me who my agent was. And I said, agent. <laughs> uh, I don't have an agent. Uh, so she said, for the sake of your time and my time, how about I just email you the details? So I said, sure, thank you. So she hung up the phone. And I looked at my phone and I was like, you didn't even take my email down. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Yeah. So when I reached out to Rena and Dan at Speaker Slam, they were the first. Uh, first people to respond to me and I remember being very persistent and Rina still talks about it now. She says that I accepted you because of your persistence, but that persistence was only because of fear of rejection because i got it 200 times before that in the previous two weeks. Right. So I, I called her, I emailed her almost too much and just was like really grateful when I got that opportunity.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Jim Rohn, he always talks about the, the receiving process it only starts when you ask oh so yeah see that you're you're out there you're asking you're being persistent as soon as you had a little little nibble you really latched on to it and uh, oh, yeah. rena. but when rena sees passion and she sees enthusiasm and she is she dreams of incredible stories so i'm sure as soon as she heard your story she wanted to put you up on stage so can you tell us a little bit about that well, you know uh, what was the, the the basic theme of your story and then we can dive a little bit deeper into some of the specifics
1: Right, so uh, basically, when I, uh, when I found out Speaker Slam, I went and watched every single Speaker Slam video previously. Amazing. Um, I just wanted to know what I was up against, I wanted to know what they were about, and so yep. I applied for everything. And then there was the three months, and I was looking at three months, and one was Body Beautiful, one was The Power of Belief, and then one was, I think, Identity. Yep. And I said, I, respond, I I see myself in all three of those, right? But one of them really kind of uh, stuck out to me, and that was the power of belief. And it so happened that there was a month gap, and then the power of belief. So I kind of fell in at a, a perfect time um, for a theme that resonated so deeply with me. Mm-hmm. And um, I just felt that way because if you've heard my story, you know that yeah. I was on my own. When I was 16, and that's all I had. That's all I that I clung to, right? And so after getting that taste of the the speed speech. I thought, OK, on a little bit of a bigger scale, the power of belief is the message that I want to deliver. And it so happened that this organization is willing to take me to deliver that speech. And so it kind of just fell in really perfectly. And I got really excited. And uh, for a month, I went over and I, I practiced my speech. I read it to my, to my friends and my family and to the point where it just sounded like words to me. I would have to go put my speech down. I'd have to go play sports or I'd have to go to the gym or something. I'd come back and then revisit it because yeah. it didn't even sound like a speech anymore. It just sounded like a bunch of words I was trying to remember. And it took the okay. meaning. of it. And so at the beginning of my speech, before I started, I took out the letter that I received when I was kicked out and I took it out and I, I just looked at it and I read it to myself because they don't start your time until you start speaking. So it was just put me in that place to make that it emotional. Feel, state. That emotional. Yeah, exactly. To make it no longer feel like just words. It brought me back to where I was and reminded me where I was at. And then it reminded me to be grateful for what's in front of me. And I kind of just delivered my speech from that feeling.
0: Yeah. That's very powerful for those people that are listening, interested in public speaking. What you did is a technique called anchoring
1: mm-hmm.
0: you anchored yourself inside of the emotions that you were experiencing at the time and brought that to the present. So very powerful. And like, Kudos to you for having the, the know-how to do that. Uh, I wanted to, to touch on that for those that haven't seen the speech that don't know you that well. In that speech, you talked about uh, bouncing around foster homes. Uh, you talked about being homeless. And then specifically about a cold January night where you were standing on the curb and you got a letter from the Orangeville police. What did that say?
1: Um, obviously I don't, if you've seen my video, you know, that I don't have that, that, uh, letter with me anymore. I actually crumpled it up on. that. Yes. So that letter stayed with me for a very long time. And I I was being very truthful when I said that I carried it with me physically and emotionally. Um, if I didn't have it in my pocket, it was weighing on me a lot. Um, that letter, what it said is obviously don't have it, but it was saying that I'm not welcome on or near the property as per request from my mother. So after, the, after I got removed from the family home, my mother actually went into the Orangeville Police Service station and requested to them that I, that I no longer be allowed on the property. And when I moved in with the, uh, the family that I'm staying with now, they reminded me that any, any document in the police service that has your name on it, you're able to go retrieve. So I went and I retrieved this, this document that said this. And it kind of resolidified the... The feeling of of loneliness again, right? And I wanted to be very quickly descriptive in that speech, and I wanted people to understand that it wasn't May, it wasn't June, it wasn't July when I was kicked out. Where I can just go somewhere nice and hang warm. on a park bench, yeah, yeah, and find a park bench or or go do something and and go unnoticed. It was January. It was cold. Um, I sat down on that curb, and my butt was cold. And I had the letter and I was just, I had that feeling of the environment was cold. I felt cold. Everything was cold. And with cold, we, we associate that with like with loneliness and, yeah. and despair. And that's exactly yeah. how I felt. And it was so weird that it was like the, my surroundings matched how I felt. Mm-hmm. And so in my speech, I didn't, I only had six minutes to deliver. So I couldn't dive into those details. But I wanted to very quickly paint that picture that, Everything about the letter, everything about my feeling, everything about the environment was cold. And that's how I felt is that even though I was in a warm environment, within school and my sports and I had people around me, it was just this feeling of when that was all over, it was all still very cold. And I just wanted to paint that picture.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. And you mentioned from there, standing on the roof of your school mm-hmm. and looking down and feeling the ice on your feet and that was the first time you thought about taking your own life right. I want to read something that you that you said that I thought was pretty profound you mentioned that you came to the realization that even in the darkest of times you're destined for something greater
1: right.
0: talk about what that means for you how do you how do you come to that realization and then what that can mean for anyone that's listening right now who is in a dark place that you mentioned that was the darkest place of your uh darkest time of your life so you know what did that what did that where did that come from and what can that mean for someone that's listening that's in the same place
1: um yeah so that public school was important to me and I, it's interesting that i found myself on that roof because there were a number of places that i could have felt the exact same way in um but for some reason i was standing on my public school roof where if you remember earlier in the speech i was i kind of didn't have a, a connection with, a deep connection with. I was yeah. called, I was mistaken for the other mixed race child, right? We, we were called by each other's name. Uh, the only reason why I knew him is he, he was in a grade beneath me. And the only reason why I knew him is because we would see each other in the school and we would pass each other and say, like, hey, how are you? We'd by each other's names, just because it was an ongoing joke. But we were too young to realize that yeah. something was wrong with that. But it was interesting that I found myself on that gym route. And I don't know why. Um, but I just remember that that, again, that feeling of cold, that feeling of loneliness. And for some reason, I think I just associated a disconnection with that place. Um, and so I remember being on that roof and there's always, there's that tin ledge, right? There's that kind of like eavesdrop steel edge. And again, I wanted to be very descriptive because I don't know if it was the, if it was because I was so lost or because I was so frustrated or. Or sad, but the details sharpen mm. they you understand, you see everything more intensely, and I think that's why it hurts so much more when you're in those problems, those issues, right? but you you take in everything significantly more, something that would just skip by you, you notice it more. so I took in that steel ledge, and I was standing up there, and it was two o'clock in the morning, and th- I was in a residential area, it was a public school. Um, And there's that feeling of, I hope someone notices, but I hope nobody notices. Um, I want to be stopped. I don't want to be stopped. This is all so much. Mm -hmm. And my mind was just going on a million miles an hour. And if you've ever been in a situation, if you've ever had like a mental health disorder, you know that there's no stopping your mind at that point. It's going a million miles an hour. So when I realized that there was no way that I was going to be able to stop these thoughts, It was how can I change the thoughts? Okay, my my head my head is going too fast. There's nothing going right for me right now. I will not be able to force these out of my head. That is that's that's off the table right now. What can I do instead? And that's all what I did was I focused on the greater at that point. And it's it's so much easier for me to just like sit here and tell you that oh just focus on the positive. Yeah. Um, but when you recognize that it's not only just negative in your head your mind's going to miles an hour it will back you it will it will actually support you i didn't make up any things that positive things that i felt although it seemed like i was all i did was show gratitude towards those positive things that were happening in my life and it's interesting because people say losing hurts more than winning feels good mm. but when i was on that edge the positive overtook all of the negative okay. i being grateful for being adopted, right? It was not that, oh, you got adopted and got kicked out. It was you got adopted. You were, you're in this place because of that. Um, it was anything that I was alone, but I wasn't alone. I had my rugby community. I had my cadet community. I had community. So how could I possibly be alone? And a lot of it was just being logical with myself right putting things into perspective for myself no one was up there beside me saying oh malcolm you don't like don't look at that look at this i had to do that myself and it's just that recognition that even though it feels so imposs- impossibly difficult to have that conversation with yourself it's also a, it's also a sign of maturity right Being able to set yourself down, even at an extreme point of being on an edge or being to a point where you know that you you will no longer be able to deal with those consequences and saying, I'm not okay, but it's all right around me. It's okay. How do I get back to where I was? How do I get there? Well, for one, I have my help. I will, I have my health. I've got a support system. They're not here right now. But why are they not here right now? For me, I didn't tell anybody. Mm. You know what I mean? It was embarrassing. I got kicked out of my house at age 16. I didn't want people to know. I didn't walk down this like the, like my streets or walk down the halls at school and flaunt it. It was embarrassing. So for me, it was, again, being logical. Hey, no one's here to support you, but why? Well, Malcolm, you didn't tell anybody you know you decided to hold that in in yourself okay so the first thing that i'm going to do is i'm going to get help first thing is i'm going to get off this roof and i'm going to i'm going to go get help i'm going to tell somebody that i'm not okay that it, that when i'm at rugby practice and i'm at track practice i then i appear to be okay that i'm not okay and so being on that roof was just that it was a learning process for me and what was probably an hour of standing on that edge felt like an eternity, but the end of it, I left stronger and smarter just off of logic, just off of just being appreciative, just being off of, of being simple with myself and truthful to myself.
0: Okay. Yeah. Lots to unpack there. I really appreciate you sharing from the heart. The, the what I'm getting from this, and you can correct me if if I'm misinterpreting is that When you have this negativity that's coming at you, you you have to make the conscious choice to choose the positive and let that flow. And it sounds like that flooded and was overwhelming the Mm -hmm. negative in your experience. So that's one. Uh, The second thing that I'm hearing, and and it's extremely valuable because every time I've ever done a speech and talks about mental health to audiences in high school and university is the number one most important thing that you can do is reach out for help. Mm -hmm. because people see, uh, you described it as embarrassment, but people see there being weakness in experiencing challenges with their mental health, but every single person has mental health challenges. And so the answer is not to hold it in and to seclude themselves and act as if I'm the only one that's experienced this or I'm the only one that's ever going to experience this. Instead, it's to say, everyone's going to experience the challenge. And by actually reaching out for help, I'm giving other people the permission to right. the same thing at a reach out as well. So I'm hearing that as well, that that was really important. Can you maybe share one or two other, you know, tangible takeaways from that, that low you experienced and what you did that really helped make you feel better so that the audience can then go and try to apply those in their life. I'm hearing um, overwhelming positivity, mm-hmm. reaching out for help. Anything else there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speakers say it all the time and I'll just be the millionth speaker to drive this. Okay. One. Good. But it's okay. To not be okay. Yeah. Um, yeah like I said, you've heard that a million times. If you haven't heard it, I'm happy to be the first, but I I can't take credit for that one. That one's been around for a while, but recognizing that it's okay to not be okay. So you're going to hear, but we'll talk about it later, hopefully in this podcast about uh, me playing sports and in my, my leadership opportunities. But when you're this, this figure that you have to be strong, you, people are relying on you to be strong. My friends would come to me with their issues and I would help them with them because I have a, I have good problem solving skills, or I'm able to put things in perspective because of the situation that I came from, or et cetera. But realizing that you don't have to be this strong leader, this, this strong rugby player, right, that never gets hurt. It's okay to not be okay. And I had to convince myself that, and it took a very long time because again, no one knew. So I didn't have people coming up to me and saying, Malcolm, you look upset today. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to not be okay. I didn't have that. So that process took extra long. So in that order, I would say you need to reach out for help. You need to tell someone and then recognize that it's okay to not be okay because that person is going to help resolidify that with you. They're going to help. Every time you forget it, that person will be there to tell you. I didn't have that. I held that inside. I kept that with me. I, I buried it deep down so that I didn't have to face that. And I didn't have to face that. What I thought was embarrassment or what you were talking about was weakness, um, especially in a leadership role. And I had to tell myself that it's okay to not be okay. And the second that I did that, I was open to healing. And that, I, that, really, uh, that really helped me out a lot.
0: Okay, fantastic. So the three major takeaways there is focus on the good. No matter how bad it gets, there's still so much to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. You know, Take that time to reach out for help, extend your hand, and then know that it's okay to not be okay. And once you do, then you can start to accept that healing. Really appreciate that. And I'm glad you mentioned leadership because I'd love to transition there. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing for the first time today that you were in cadets. Yeah. cool. So you spent how long in cadets?
1: I did nine years in the Army Cadet Program as okay. a cadet. And then I, uh, I continued with the program as an expedition officer afterwards.
0: Okay, I'm trying to imagine you in the uniform right now, what that would have looked like. I'm curious, what are some of the, the biggest takeaways you got from leadership skills and abilities from being in cadets? And then we can talk a little bit about rugby and how it translated there.
1: Yeah, um, so for starters, you should know that I didn't join the Army Cadet Program. I was put into the Army Cadet Program by my parents for disciplinary uh, action. Okay. Well, over the first couple of years, I met a friend in the Army Cadet Program that didn't want to be there just as much as me. And so we bonded over that. We became best friends because of that. Mm. Um, so I didn't learn any sort of leadership. I wasn't open to or learning any leadership. I was doing my time as a prisoner in this Army Cadet Program, and I was going home. That's it. Um, my third year, I actually began to have fun. I began to realize that there's uh, so many opportunities within this program that I was missing out on because I was – Showing up grumpy or just choosing not to polish my boots, or
0: you weren't holding the right context.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, when I opened that, I turned that page and I realized that, hmm, I'm interested in this now. The leadership opportunities presented themselves right then and there. And I would, well, through those two years of not caring and not whatever, I was still noticing leaders Mm -hmm. and I noticed different. uh, We had the yellers right? The screamers, what we call them, like the people who, if they want anything done, they would just bark orders at you. And I noticed that it got done, but then there was always this, why is he yelling at me? Why is, was that necessary? And there was this linger after
0: Yeah. It wasn't great for morale.
1: Yeah. And I was like, hmm, like if I'm ever a leader, I don't want there to be an after murmur, right? I just want the job to be done. And then there was the leaders who were too passive aggressive and they would be like, when, whenever you get the chance, can you do this for me? And then I would notice that it got done at half speed. Mm. And so it was just those two years that I didn't care. I was noticing things still. I was still taking it in. I just didn't want to be there. And so when it came time for me to figure out who I was as a leader, uh, when I came in, I remember I came into a room and uh, all the cadets were in the room. And I said, may I have your attention, please? And everybody stopped and turned. And I said, that's interesting. I said, please. And everybody stopped what they were doing. Weird. Um, I was just putting myself on their level,
0: right? Yeah.
1: And I said, I'll give you 10 seconds. And I need all these chairs stacked on the other side of the room. And then I said, but I'm only going to give you 10 seconds. And I need this job done as soon as possible, please. And I said, are you ready? And then they got ready. and I, People were like in a, in like a running stance, with chairs, like ready to go. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, three, two, one go and people took off
0: nice
1: chairs got lined up nice and then i said thank you very much and i walked out of the room and i sat there and i reflected on that and i said why was that so successful and i thought about the screamer and i thought about how long that would have taken for him to get all those chairs stacked up on the other side of the room and then i thought of the the too overly passive aggressive and i and i thought how long that would have taken for those chairs to be stacked up on the other side of the room and then i said how did i find a healthy medium how how did I do that? And honestly, it was just watching leaders before me and capitalizing on their positives, transitioning that into myself as a leader, and then correcting their negatives. It's not my place to go up the chain of command and say, ma'am or sir, what, that leadership action you just took right there was incorrect or I felt it could have been better. Certainly not my place. But I would quietly correct that to myself. Got it. And when I came time all I did was just take the best from the best and learn from the the issues and became really successful. And again, I mentioned about lowering myself to, to that level as well. That's just empathy. That just stems from empathy. So uh, there was this, uh, there was this talk about parenting and they talk about how when you're a child and you're getting disciplined by your parent, you're physically looking up at them. So not only are you, are you being disciplined and you feel belittled? You're looking up at the parent, so as if to state that I am the dominant figure and you are not. And yeah. in essence, they are. Yes. However, there's that added effect of them being taller and looking up yeah. at them, and this feeling of you're small and unimportant. And so the 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 ta- or the the uh, article went on to say basically that when parents are disciplining their kids if they would sit them down in a chair and meet them at the level okay. or if they would have a seat on the side of the bed and again, meet them at the same level or even have a seat on the floor Yeah. that kid has is higher up. And, and that really, that really impacted me as a leader as well because I no longer walked into a room and stayed, stood above everyone. And being six, four, I was always above people. Mm -hmm. So when I had opportunities, I would, always lower myself to that level. So if there was the the balcony, and then there was the gym floor where all my cadets were rather than bark orders from from up top, I'd walk down off the balcony, meet them on their level, and then command. Mm. And it's so simple, but it went so far. And I've just transitioned that into sports and into life. And if I'm having a conversation with someone, and I'm on a flight of stairs, I will walk off those steps and meet them at that level to, to feel that we are emotionally and physically on the same level right now and then taking what they're talking about. And that just comes from empathy.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. There's a ton of lessons in all those stories you told. I love the Bruce Lee quote where it you know, talks about uh, taking what works, leaving what doesn't work and then taking what's unique, you know, adding in what's uniquely your own. It sounds like that's what you were doing when you were being very observant, looking at the leaders that you admired, seeing the leaders that you didn't, and then adding, you know, what is Malcolm? Mm-hmm. You know, beautiful, seeing people as equals, not talking down to someone, having empathy for people. That's all really uh, important qualities of a leader. And you mentioned being 6'4". So mm-hmm. you were forced to be in the Army Cadets.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm guessing you probably weren't forced to play rugby. Uh, I wouldn't want to play mm-hmm. on the rugby pitch on the team against you because – that would hurt a lot. Yeah, you're absolutely huge, man. When I saw you walk through the door, speaker, I was saying, I was like, Jesus. <laughs> so yeah, definitely wouldn't want to play rugby against you. How'd you get into rugby? And then talk a little bit about how you bring, you know, leadership to sport. And then some of the accomplishments, because you you've got some incredible accomplishments, tons to be proud of in rugby. It's one thing to be a captain of a team, but it's another thing to be a captain of a championship
1: team. Right. Um. <clears throat> so my rugby, my rugby career um so actually it started when I was in grade 11 in high school and Orangeville is a hockey and lacrosse town that's it like you play those two sports and if you do both girls love you it's amazing you know yes yeah. I mean? yeah, you- yes exactly <laughs> girls love it um no but basically every weekend you're at the rink uh all through the week you've got practices yep um, just constantly playing hockey or lacrosse. So we didn't actually have a, a rugby team at my school. And at the other high school in Orangeville, we had a football team, right? So when my uh, <clears throat> my French teacher and my cooking teacher came together and they said, we love the game of rugby. We want to bring it to, to Westside Secondary School, which was my high school. We were, all us hockey players who, who loved the contact in hockey said, absolutely. Mm. It's essentially soccer where you can pick up the ball and just crush people in the open field jeez. <laughs> just because you can't, and That's we love <laughs> but we loved the sound of it and we got behind it. So we went out and uh, we had a few practices and then my, uh, my French teacher noticed, who's my head coach, kind of noticed my leadership ability and he, he gave me the captain. And this was the first year that we'd ever had a rugby team or anything. That's awesome. So that was a lot for me because it's one thing to be a leader of something that you're an expert in, and it's another to be a leader of something that you have no idea what you're doing. Absolutely. And, um, and it was just funny because with rugby, I had no idea, but it's a very gentleman sport, uh, which is weird because we kind of
0: just... You look like barbarians out there.
1: Yeah, kind of beat each other up for 80 minutes, but uh, it's a very, actually a very gentleman, uh, gentleman sport. And the thing was, is that the coaching staff and the players on the field, no one can talk to the referee. Hmm. One person can, and that's the captain. Okay. And there's 15 people on each side, plus your substitutes on the side, plus your your coaching staff. So there's a lot of people in and around the pitch, and only two people, one from either side, can actually communicate with the ref. Um, so that for me was again, coaches in rugby, they basically put their their players on the field, and then they're done. Hmm. Um, so leading a team. Was one thing, but being the voice of the team was another. And with hockey, you could be the voice of the team, but you've got two assistant captains. Yeah. Uh, soccer, I see. I see the managers or the coaching staff yelling at the refs all the time because they're not getting calls With with rugby, it was so different. And so, I had to learn that I was responsible for 15 players on the field plus our subs, so 30 players, and a coaching staff looking out for their safety, but being their voice as well. And That was difficult for me because the the ref would call me over and say, hey, Malcolm, uh, what the heck was that player doing? And I'd have to say, I'm sorry, sir, I I don't really know. I'm not really familiar with the rules. Uh, He was trying his best to make a safe tackle, but clearly he didn't. Yeah, no, he didn't, (laughs) right? So that was an obstacle for me as well. But ultimately, I learned very quickly, and we transitioned into the next year. We didn't have a team after that. so. I went to Durham College, and I actually joined the basketball team. Um, I I had a I liked basketball. I just there was no sounds rugby like, program.
0: Sounds so, like at six four you got a lot of options.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just kind of dropped rugby, one and done. Took my leadership opportunity, took my experience, and just left. Okay. And went to basketball. And then I played a year of basketball at Durham College, <clears throat> and uh, we had an, an inaugural season. So we, we had a referendum at the school and it was for a, a rugby team at Durham college. And I was like, Oh boy, this will be exciting. Like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I tried out and I made the team and we had a, like a one week training camp and my, and this is a brand new team. I've got one year of high school rugby under my belt. I barely know what I'm doing. Um, but again, I, I got really lucky. I fell into a good time because this is a rebuilding year. This was a year for Durham college to get a program that I hadn't had in long time and rebuild so coaching staff was not there was no expectation for really good players it was a building year so coach gave me captain of that team and I was like uh uh-oh I'm at the college level I played one year of this sport people on my team have played this sport since they were six Mm -hmm. and I gotta lead these through this group of guys here and so again I got into the college level and I was learning as I was supposed to be an expert and you hear like fake confidence is real confidence. And I lived and breathed by that, <laughs> that uh, saying because I would show up to the pitch and I would be 15 minutes early because I had to appear to know what I was doing, right? Every call by the ref, I, ref, I would go talk to them, not to contradict the call, but to understand fully why that call was made. Um, so there was, that was a big curve, uh, learning curve for me. But then just this last year, We finally entered the OCAA. So we finally entered the league. Uh, We had our inaugural season under our belt, and we took on serious rugby players. And following that inaugural season, my head coach said, Malcolm, why don't you stay here and play club rugby? Stay in Oshawa. We'll get you a house. We'll get you situated with a job for the summer. And I said, oh, I can't do that. I go to Army Cadets every summer. That's it. That's been my summer since I was 12 years old. Go to Army Cadets and and do that. So I said, no, I can't do that. No way. But I I took him up on it. And I stayed here and I played club rugby uh, with the Oshawa Vikings and I loved it, loved every second of it, loved the family, loved everything about it. And while I wasn't given obviously the captain of that team that I just walked onto, um, I was still, there was still this expectation of, of being vocal, being a part of the family. And I was never looked at weird when I joined that. I never was, was outcast. It wasn't whatever. So I just continued to be the same vocal Person that I had been on the on the pitch for those two years, and so when we transitioned back into September, back into our first year in the league, um, Coach said, "Malcolm, I want you to lead these boys again," and I got captain again. And now I was at the level I needed to be at with my game, and I was at the level where I needed to be at with my leadership. Mm. And so it worked out perfectly this year, and um, and my coach had told me in that past summer, he had said, like, I can see you progressing and playing at the next level. I just need you to do this, this, and this. And I had actually got uh, rookie of the year with my club in that first year that I was there. And yeah, it just gave me confidence to kind of continue into the next year. And in that inaugural season at the co-curricular banquet, my coach actually gave me the leadership award. So it's like I had a really great support group behind me. And so when I got that captain, of the Durham Lords in the first year in the league, it wasn't like I was lost. Like I was in grade 11 with my team and, and I was flustered and I had 30 boys to look after and I didn't know how to do it. I was ready for that opportunity mm. and I stepped into that role. And again, with that, with rugby, I'm in control and it's, it's scary man. it's definitely scary. Um, so coaches run practice, but when it's game time, it's, it's the captain who takes over and the captain makes decisions. And I remember we are second game of the season. We had lost our first game of the season. Uh, so that was terrible. Second game of the season, we're playing the same team. And we got close to the other team's uh, try zone And I don't know if you know anything about rugby, but we were awarded a penalty. So we had okay. a choice. And captain is given the option. Do you want to kick for points? So we can put three points on the, bo- on the board right there and get the ball back to us if we convert it. We can kick it out of bounds. And it's our ball wherever we kicked it out of bounds or we could just tap it off our foot and try to run it and just go and try to score. Um, So I made the decision as captain. I said, our boys looked flustered. We looked nervous. We just came off a loss. And again, it was just problem, it was just problem solving, right? Just recognizing what we needed at that moment. And I said, let's kick for points. And a couple people on the team turned to me and said, what? kick for points like we're running these guys over let's go let's go let's go let's let's score these five points and get the ball back i said we are going to kick for points and we did and our kicker converted and we got the ball back and we won that game by two points nice right and so for me that was that right there i learned a valuable lesson and that was back yourself and i learned right there that whatever decision i make whether it was on the field off the field whatever 100% of the people aren't going to support it. They're not they're not going to recognize it. They're not going to see why you see it so crystal clear. Uh, but in my head there was no certainty that we were going to miss that kick. There was no other alternative. We are going to kick it. We're going to kick it. We're going to get it and yeah. we're going to pull back. And so now when I go into these things and I was talking about speaker slam and I was given that opportunity, there was no uncertainty. There was you made a decision. You want to go pursue a dream here and you're going to go do it. And people aren't going to like it. And I got, I got negative feedback on my, uh, on my speech from some people when it went viral and people had questions that I could not answer. But there was so many people that were on the other side and supporting me.
0: Overwhelming positivity. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that goes back to the first point we talked about where there's going to be that negative Yeah. It was impossible for me not to think about it and it's easier for me to say just push it out of your mind but it's easier to just flood it with positives and it just kind of tunes it out and to a point where you don't even notice it anymore when i made a decision on the field two people are barking at me that this is the wrong call but of the 15 people on the field 12 people are saying good call captain let's do it right it's that simple so that kind of gave me that confidence and we went through the whole year, and, and showing that decision right there and that certainty in that decision right there, I just I gained a lot of respect from some of my teammates. Mm-hmm. And we went through the year. We progressed. and We didn't lose a game after our first loss. Fantastic. Seven, seven straight wins, and uh, we won the championship. And I, I got injured in that championship game, and it was tough. I was on the sideline. I hurt my shoulder, and I was out for five months. But that feeling of that final whistle going – uh, in our first year, with no expectations, no nothing, we hosted it in Oshawa because we did so well in the regular season. It was just yes. perfect, man. It, I, it, was, it was unbelievable. Yeah.
0: Kudos on the win there. I think the, the biggest takeaway for me personally when you're telling that story is the lesson you learned from making the call, going with your gut, and then having the, the reaffirmation later that that was the right call was, you know, we're, we're going to battle Every single day of our life, whether it's to wake up on our alarm, if it was for you to, to make that call to win that rugby game, you know, doing speaker slam, they're all battles in our lives. And in order to win the battle, we need to have certainty mm-hmm. because fear and doubt kills the warrior, man. Yeah. And so the fact that you have that, you know, that stopping power now to believe in yourself, to, to go with your gut, to do what you know is right. I think that'll serve you as a, as a leader. It'll serve you in entrepreneurship. It'll serve you as a speaker. So keep that, keep that with you, man. It
1: we've will got, we've
0: got a lot of people out there that are extremely uncertain. They, they can't just say, fuck it. This is what I'm going to do. They have a lot of doubt and it's eroding their self-esteem. It's killing their confidence and they're not making the moves they need to be making. So good for you. And, you know, just fantastic examples of leadership. I want to round this out with, you know, two more questions. One is you mentioned that coach where you were planning on going to cadets, but instead you stayed and did rugby and wondering, maybe it's that coach, maybe it isn't that coach. Is there one or two people in your life that's made a, just a big impact? Either they said something, they did something, they they showed up in a certain way that impacted you and, and how you live your life. You know, do you have, do you have anyone like that?
1: Um, very similar to when I was speaking about the leadership qualities and I took away what was amazing and I kind of left what wasn't and, hoped and built upon it to find who I was as a leader, finding out who I was as a person was the exact same process. Mm-hmm. People who have come into my life, it feels like sometimes it's a revolving door and it's not one or two people that have had the impact on me. It's been every person that's come into my life and I've taken those positive things from those people. And I've learned my mentor talks, uh, talks all the time about her creativity and it's helped me find my creativity. Mm -hmm. My coach, I went out on a limb with my coach and I said, ah, I'll stay in Oshawa and I'll play. And I, and I took that and I appreciated that from him and my friends when, when I didn't have anyone and they took me in off the street and provided me with something that, I I will never be able to put a number value to it's priceless to what that means to me, but I've taken one, two, 10, a thousand things from the people that have come into my life positively and just left any negatives on the side that the person I am today is to thank for that. So like I said, my coaching staff, my, my professors at my, my school, the people who took me off the street, even the parents that took me in, the adopted parents that took me in, that ended up kicking me out based off of a, a dispute that we had had. And I came home late for basketball practice. And I'll talk about that further uh, in, my, in my other talks and everything. But even them, I've got so much to thank for them. And I don't, I don't have time. And throughout this whole altercation that I've had with my adopted parents, not once have I said, F you, I hate you. Uh, you're the worst people. Not once have I said that. And more than once have I felt that way. Um, but not once have I said that because I know that, this, that that's not important. What was important was they gave me an opportunity. right? I, I, I had people coming visiting and not adopting. Um, they brought me into a place where I was fortunate enough to play hockey. And I was fortunate, fortunate enough to go through and not be poor and, and do those things. I took all of those things, and I continue to take all of those things away from every person that enters my life. And any negatives that come in, I either don't have time for it because I've learned that, right? When I, when I was kicked out of my house, I, uh, I remember I cried for two hours straight. And after I was done crying, I sat up and I said, what changed here i looked at my watch and two hours have gone by i said so i'm in the exact same situation that i was in two hours ago the only difference is is that two hours have gone by mm-hmm. and so that got me thinking is that there's no time for the world doesn't stop because you are you've got negativity going on in your life the world continues to go around right and uh, for like anybody who's a gamer or anything, you think of it like an online video game. You know how mom calls you down because because dinner's ready, and she says just pause it, right? And you say, oh, I can't pause it because I'm playing online, mom. You don't understand it. Mm-hmm. But my point is is that you can't pa- you can't pause this online video game of life, right? And that negativity that came into my life, or that people bring into my life, whether it's on purpose or accident, the second I realized that I can't pause this. I can't pause this amazing thing that's happening right now. I will never be able to get back those seconds. Why am I dealing with this negativity right now? Is it self-inflicted? Is it something I can control? Is it something I can't control? And I kind of just move that to the side. I kind of just push that to the side because it's unimportant at this time. So as far as those one or two or 10 or a million people that have impacted me, I just want to thank them because I continue day by day to take those positive things from them, whether it's creativity from my mentor, like I said, or leadership from my coaches, or I, I watch my captain for my club team and I learned so much from him just by, just by watching from afar. My professors, my uh, Dan and Rena uh, that took me and allowed and gave me an opportunity. Right. And I, and I kind of like just live by this mentality now to pay it forward because There's somebody exactly like me that's molding and creating themselves from the impact that others are having on them, and that works both ways, both both positively and negatively. I'm fortunate enough to kind of see that that I that I'm being molded by other people, and I and and I'm able to keep that negativity away. But people who are unrecognizing of that need that help and assistance. And when I came to Durham College, I actually went here for. Police foundations. I wanted to be a police officer because I wanted to have that impact and I wanted to and all those negative police officer stories out there. I wanted to be the exception. Yeah, but I actually recognized that I don't need a badge and a gun to make that impact. Um, I just need my voice. And I, so I start I started talking. I started preparing a speech. And like I said, that that uh, that message came to my email for the speed speech. And I don't enter those contests, man. I put those in the trash. There's just junk mail here at Durham College, but for some reason, I opened it up, and I thought, I am going to make an impact on somebody, the same way that those in those people walk in and out of my life and make a lasting impact on me. I'm going to do it, and I did it, and I was successful. And I said, "This is really great." And there was four people in the room, <laughs> and I did it again at Speakers' Summit. I said, "This is really great," and there were. I think 200 people in the room and I'm going to do it at the grand slam in uh, November. And I'm going to say probably the exact same thing. Only difference is there's going to be 600 people in the room. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm just going to continue that process. And I've got every single person who's walked into my life to thank me, like to thank for that, because I definitely would never have walked down this path, never have found who I was as a person during this process. Um, And yeah, I've got them to thank for that.
0: Malcolm, I've really enjoyed this time together. You have a very mature outlook on life. And from all the the books I've read from Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, Jim Rohn, every, every speaker talks about your mind and your thoughts being the biggest indicator of the path of your future so man right right for you i hope some people that are listening right now that have either been in a rut maybe they're in a dark place maybe their their mindset isn't as empowering as it could be hopefully this shakes them up because very profound uh, very positive i could see why you being a leader on a team can make a real big impact for the rest of the team. I could see how you being in front of a stage can make a big impact for students or adults or leaders or, or teams. So keep doing what you're doing, man. The message is right. It's a a beautiful message. I really appreciate you uh, being on the show. Hopefully we can have a round two after the win, after you win the grand slam. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to share briefly before we jump off?
1: Um, I guess I'll just take the time here to, uh, to recognize the people who appear to be the strongest, um, I touched on it earlier in the sequence that I had to be OK, right? And the issue is that you don't have to be okay. You just have to take action to help it. And so six hours of my high school days, I was okay. I was okay.) Um, the one hour of a tryout, or a rugby practice or a basketball practice after school, I was okay. And the hockey practice that I would go to, I was, I was okay. And I didn't, it was partially my fault because I didn't, I didn't reach out to anybody. I didn't express this, but it was just a distraction, right? That feeling, that cold that I spoke about earlier. That physical cold, that emotional cold, that doesn't go away. That doesn't, when it becomes warm outside or it's summertime, it doesn't make everything just bright and happy. It's still there and it still lingers. And so when you're distracting yourself, when I got kicked out, sorry, when I was living at home, I remember I was on the soccer team uh, at at my high school and my parents wouldn't let me go to practice. And every time I got in trouble at home, my mom said, see, This is why I don't let you try out for teams at school. And after that, I wasn't allowed to try out for any sports teams. I went to school and I had to come right home. The second I was kicked out of my house, I tried out for every single team. Now, is that because I was not allowed? And now I am allowed because I'm my own person? Well, maybe. But it's also because after those six hours of school are over, I'm not going home. Right? So why not tack on a cross-country practice after school? And then maybe a badminton practice. I'd never played badminton in my life. found out that I loved it, but but that's not the point. The point was for those hours, I distracted myself because I didn't think it was okay to be in the situation I was in, thought it was embarrassing. And it's not anyone else's fault, but no one checked up on me, right? Why would they? I didn't give them a reason to check up on me, right? I went and saw the social service worker at my school. And there was a girl beside me, and she was wearing uh, ripped jeans and a stained shirt. And she went in bawling her eyes out, and uh, she came out with her tears dried and said that she got the help she needed. And I went in next, and I wore nice clothes, because what I did was I I stuck into the school when the janitors opened, and I I showered in there, and I stole food from the cafeteria, and I appeared to be okay. And so I went in to see the uh, social service worker, and I said, ma'am, I've been removed from my family home. She said, how old are you? I said, 16 she said well there's nothing I can do about it and because I appeared to be mentally okay and physically I was dressed nice and I looked good and there was no issue Mm -hmm. right clearly a big issue in my head that I'm not showing but but no issue to anybody else and so I left that office and nothing changed nothing got fixed there was no help provided it's not that nobody took uh, teachers didn't extend dates. Teachers didn't extend help. Nothing, and that was partially my fault, like I said. But nobody checked up. So if the last thing I would leave it with is that mental health issues are absolutely everywhere. They come in the most severe terms, where you you can't help but walk past down the street and notice that someone's in pain, or they come in the most mild terms or the most extreme terms, but the person who is experiencing them is a master in disguising it. You have no idea what is going on in people's lives. And there's this saying that if everyone was to throw their issues into a pile, they'd be very quick to take theirs back. And I learned that on this journey is that I went through this struggle and no one had any idea. That got me thinking, how many other people out there are experiencing the exact same thing? And my mission here is to reach those people. Those people that are going unnoticed. Those people that are slipping through the cracks, not because they want to slip through the cracks, but because we don't pay extra attention to those people. And they are too too strong, or they feel like they're too strong to reach out for help because they think it's a sign of weakness. That's who I would reach out and share my message to. That's why I continue to write. That's why I continue to speak and that's why I hope to have a career in entrepreneurship where I'm not bound by a nine to five schedule. I'm bound by the 950,000 people who need to hear what I have to say.
0: All right, man. I really appreciate that. I'm going to, I'm going to take some time to decompress on this. Lots to take in. I know the listeners are their minds probably all over the place. What I will say is without a shadow of a doubt that if you keep up the attitude and you keep taking action, you have a very bright future. Whatever you decide to do, my friend, if that's cadets, if that's rugby, if that's entrepreneurship, if the world is your oyster. So uh, I'm going to let you go for now call to action. I would love everyone listening to go to YouTube, type in Malcolm Hooper. I will tag it in all of the posts on social media. You should absolutely look at a speech. And additionally, if you've never been to Speaker Slam before, a quick plug for Rena and Dan, uh, Mm -hmm. Grand Slam's coming up. Is that in November? November 20th, uh, yes. November 20th, and we highly recommend you come check it out. The venue's beautiful, and you're going to be able to hear Malcolm in person as well as all of the winning speakers of the entire year. It is going to be a show, and I will be there to support you, man. Awesome.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me on today, man. Appreciate it. Okay,
0: you got it. Till next time.